Welcome to the ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of our ICAW series looking into the topics covered in the government's white paper on restoring trust in corporate governance and audit reform. My name is Ian Wright. I'm Managing Director of Reputation and Influence at ICAW and I'm really pleased to be chairing these series of podcasts. This episode focuses on arguably the most contentious topic throughout the whole of the white paper, that of audit reform. A series of frauds and corporate failures have focused attention on the role of the auditor and questions asked as to why the auditor failed to ultimately identify significant problems which led to the company going under a matter of months later. Where was the auditor in all of this? The question is often asked by politicians, in Parliament, the media and by the regulator. In addition, talking about the regulator, the FRC, the regulators called into question the quality of a significant proportion of audits carried out by major firms. And attention has also been drawn to the concentration of large-scale and high-profile auditors carried out by the big four firms. 96% of FTSE 350 firms were audited by the big four in 2019. When I started my training contract some 25 years ago, there was a big six. People older than me talk about a big eight. Could the market for statutory audit services survive the withdrawal, perhaps voluntary, perhaps otherwise, of another big player in order to make a big three? What needs to be done to increase resilience, competition, choice, underpinning all by ever-improving audit quality? To discuss these really important matters, I'm really pleased to be joined by Anna Draper, lead partner at BDO in the South East, Jane Kerr, Director of Audit Strategy and Public Policy at PwC, Tracy Gordon, Director of the Centre for Corporate Governance at Deloitte, and our own Catherine Bagshaw, Manager of Auditing Standards at ICAW. Welcome all and many thanks for joining this podcast. Catherine, if I may start with you, I mentioned a couple of times in my opening remarks the point about audit quality. You look at this very closely. How on earth do you measure audit quality? Well, thanks, Ian, and it's an excellent question, and I think the short answer to it is it's really hard, but that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't be trying. Audit quality is opaque. We produced a number of publications over the years looking at this and looking at the judgment that is audit quality, as well as the metrics that we, the regulators, the firms themselves, use to measure audit quality. And that's an important and developing area. We know, for example, at the moment that the FRC is currently conducting a a pilot with the firms on audit quality metrics. And we'll be looking forward to seeing that at the end of this year, beginning of uh, next year. It's a cultural thing as well. We find when we look over the Atlantic to the US and the PCAOB that it has its own metrics for audit quality, but they're somewhat different to those that we have. And when we're thinking about audit quality, we've got to think about the broader audit quality supply chain. Now, now what is that? Well, a simple example is your outputs are as good as your inputs. So if you've got good quality people coming into the profession and you train them properly, you are probably going to get better quality audits than if you don't. And that may seem obvious, but when we're talking to government and saying, actually, the quality of entrance to the profession and the attractiveness of the profession matters, it matters because it has a direct impact on audit quality. 
Tracy and Jane, if I may turn to you, you're being criticised by a number of players in terms of order quality. That seems somewhat unfair in many respects, is it? And how do you, as individual important and influential auditing firms, how do you measure audit quality? Tracy, could I begin with you there? Thank you, Ian. I think there are obviously a number of mechanisms that the the firms use on on their own internal basis, like internal practice reviews and so on, that really look to you know our firm's methodology and and how that is is being implemented in the individual audits, and also um, obviously very much feeding in from the FRC's audit quality reviews and and the learnings from that. So there are a number of different mechanisms that we're looking at. It, it really permeates through everything that we as audit practices are doing, um, you know, the, the training that we're doing with all our people and so on. But it, it is a very difficult question. And, you know, to, exactly to Catherine's point, at the moment, there aren't particularly clear and agreed, I suppose, commonly used indicators and measures. And the FRC is undertaking this project. But it is really important to think about both input and output measures. There's firm level metrics and there's engagement level metrics that need to be considered. And, and I think, you know, this is an area that we know that audit committees do struggle with in terms of, you know, one of their responsibilities is to be assessing the effectiveness of audit and audit quality. And, you know, going forward under this these white paper proposals, they are, you know, there will be this additional, um, you know, these minimum standards and an enforcement regime by the new regulator. And I think until we can get this clarity around exactly how do you measure it, that is very challenging because what is it that audit committees should be measuring against and I think it's it is something that probably needs a lot of attention we know the investors have very strong views we know for example that the investment association believe that um, you know quite a staggeringly high number of FTSE hundreds are not adequately reporting on their challenge and assessment of of audit quality Um, and hopefully this new body that is proposed in the white paper this audit users review board will be a mechanism whereby all the kind of key stakeholders in audit quality can get in a room and and agree between them what they believe audit quality should be about. Jane, may I come to you? I think Tracy makes really important points about is it easily understood by key players, and Tracy mentioned audit committees and investors, in terms of how we determine what a good quality audit actually is. And if that's made clear, audit committees especially, investors to a large extent as well, can really help measure against those benchmarks to ensure that they're getting better audit quality. Is that the way that the whole process should be going? And is the white paper incorporating that? I think that there is an element of audit quality that is always going to be very difficult to measure. We've got metrics, we've got certain inputs and outputs that we can measure to determine if it's been an high quality audit but there's also a lot of intangible elements to an audit and and the the quality that goes into that so if I think of being in an audit room and the discussions that go on around the audit audit room table there's a lot of challenge there there's a lot of debate but that doesn't necessarily always get recorded and evidenced but it's a really good challenge and it's evidence of skepticism that the auditors are showing And I think that's a big element of judging audit quality, but it's not something that can be easily written down or evidenced. So to try and get a full picture of the quality audit, I think we've got to find a way to not only have the important metrics that we have, but also have a way to to evidence and document the more intangible aspects that happen as part of an audit. 
Catherine, can I turn to you? Because I think Jane has just provided a really important point, which is one of the things that the regulator has been saying in terms of, you know, unsatisfactory audit quality is, frankly, and I'm summarising here, there's no professional scepticism or inadequate professional scepticism. We see little evidence of challenge to management. But Jane has just said in the audit room, there's you know quite significant debate and discussion about this. Scepticism is there. It's just not reported because it's not meant to be reported. Do you think that that's the way that we address the perception of audit quality and actually help improve tangible levels of audit quality? Catherine, could you answer that? Thanks, Ian. I think this is a really interesting question. We produced a publication on professional scepticism a few years back now. We talked to all the firms about how they were making sure that they weren't subject to groupthink, that they weren't ignoring unconscious bias. And we do know that the firms have really done quite a lot in recent years on the soft skills, on behavioural aspects of auditing, on team dynamics, all that sort of thing. And they really understand themselves. We get the impression they understand themselves a lot better than they did a few years ago. I mean, no firm wants to miss a fraud. No firm wants to miss a really significant error. And it's in the firm's interest to make sure that that doesn't happen. And one thing we've had to tell the standard setter and the regulator over many years now is that simply peppering auditing standards with exhortations and requirements to be more sceptical is just a blunt instrument. We've got to think more clearly about what scepticism really is, about how it pervades what auditors do, and indeed how asking things like stupid questions has a role to play in the overall package. But like a lot of aspects, indeed like audit quality itself, professional scepticism requires an approach from several different angles, and a lot of it is about mindset. Jean, I'd like to return back to you, if I may. This is a series of podcasts about the white paper. An important element of that is audit reform, but it's not the only element. And I think you've touched upon in some earlier remarks about different players, audit committees, investors, and what have you. In the overall package of the white paper, do you think that document identifies the right areas for improvement across the board when it comes to directors, audit committees, investors, and indeed the regulator? I mean, it is, as we know, a really, really big paper, and it does cover a broad spectrum, fairly equally as well, all sort of players in the system. It's hard to say. I think there's a lot of individual measures in there that will help improve audit and the broader system. But there are some that feel like they might act against each other. So an example, I know we're going to talk about this a bit later, but the managed shared audit proposal, you know, arguably it could have an impact on audit quality. So you're increasing the choice and the competition, possibly at the sake of audit quality. So there, there are some proposals that actually seem to directly almost work against each other. But generally, I think more disclosures, more accountability across the system has to be a good thing in this area. It's just making sure that everything comes together in a way that doesn't counteract each other. Anna, let me turn to you because Jane's raised the prospect of increasing competition and choice. Are the remedies 
proposed in the white paper. And the position is more or less, you know, there are various ways to increase that competition and choice. Joint audits, in which you essentially have two auditors doing a half and half of an audit. Managed shared audit, where a firm, often known as a challenger firm, will do a proportion of the whole audit, maybe 10%, maybe as much as 30%. Or a market share cap, where the regulator or somebody, government, proposes this is going to be the cap on the number of audits that, say, big full firms can have. The White Paper's position is essentially rejecting joint audit, emphasising the importance of managed shared audit, but if that doesn't work subject to a review, that they will look to a market share cap. As And I hope this is not a patronising term, it's not meant to be. As a challenger firm in BDO, do you think the remedies proposed in the white paper are the right ones to increase competition and choice? Thanks, Ian. And this is a very interesting area and an area where there's been an, an awful lot of debate. I think for competition and choice to increase, intervention is certainly needed. I'm not sure managed shared audits achieves that necessarily. I think what we really are needing here are more firms able to audit as a primary auditor, the FTSE 350. Um, and only then, I think, will competition and real choice really increase. Of course, to achieve that, we need these firms to build capacity. We need capacity in the audit profession generally, but particularly within the challenger firms. You need investment, investment in technology, investment in highly skilled people. And it needs to be an attractive market, of course, for these firms. And to be attractive, the balance of risk and reward needs to be there. So the return on the investment. Are we talking about a structural change or increase in audit fees generally in the profession? But then regulation needs to be proportionate. The pace of change needs to be proportionate for those challenger firms where the investment is greater. So I think a market cap approach is something that would achieve that in a different way. And the pace of change, I think, would be greater in an environment where there's a market cap rather than a managed shared audit. Let me push you on those points that you've made, because they're really important. On a practical basis, how do you remove barriers to allow challenger firms to tender and to win the audits of FTSE 350 companies? What do you think will be the most successful measures to do that? Is it about you know, the demand side? So frankly, get in front of an audit committee and say, look, we're here. You don't just have to think about Big Four. We can do the job as well. Or is it more about trying to remove those barriers in terms of supply side measures? So talking about insurance, talking about liabilities, just helping challenger firms level the playing field in winning that work. What would work more than maybe is proposed in the white paper? I think you bring in the supply and demand side of the equation. And of course, both sides are very important. If I just think about the demand side first, we've already seen some movement in this area. So as a challenger firm, we are very keen to get in front of audit committees, as are other challenger firms, of course. And audit committees are definitely inviting challenger firms to the table and not just to make up the numbers in a tender process as a genuine firm who is able to deliver a high quality audit outside of the big four. And that's something we've definitely already start to see. I think the supply side is a little not maybe more challenging, but is of particular interest. And it really is about the investment that the firm needs to put in to um, develop technology, to have enough highly skilled people 
um, and have capacity within those firms. And, and this is not just a challenger firm challenge, of course. The profession generally needs to invest in having enough highly skilled people because the war for talent is already a real challenge for all of the firms. But you add that in to corporates who are going to need to strengthen their high quality resources, particularly with the internal controls proposals that will be coming in. And then also with the FRC or with Arga needing to increase its resource of high quality, talented, skilled professionals. This is an area of huge challenge for the profession generally. And I think for genuine choice or for challenger firms to have a genuinely credible place at the table, the investment in that resource is significant. You're listening to the ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast. Anna, I'm going to stay with you. You've mentioned risk and reward. And of course, the risk and reward about do we want this audit? You know, is it worth the investment that we have to put in in terms of pitching for the work, in terms of any potential reputational risk, that sort of thing? But I'm also interested in the risk and reward of tendering for audits. There's not much benefit in coming second all the time. And do you have to think selectively, strategically, in terms of which audits to go for in order to stand more than a fighting chance of winning it? Absolutely. And this is something that firms must consider all of the time. In the absence of audit reform, we would still be having the same challenges and conversations. The key is to do that at the early stage of the tender process and to ask those questions of audit committees. Are we a genuine contender here? Or are we here to make up the numbers? And we do not, you know, speaking on behalf of a challenger firm, we do not consider ourselves to be a firm that is making up the numbers. You no one likes to finish second, of course. So when you enter into a tender process, you genuinely believe you can win and you genuinely believe you have a chance of winning. And that to me is something that it remains important now, has actually always been important and will continue to be important in the future. Catherine, can I turn to you about the role of the regulator in really promoting competition and choice? And it's a question about what does a regulator do? Does it have more of a carrot than a stick? And what's the right blend? The FRC in recent years has really used sanctions a lot, you know, fines being imposed. And, and you know, while there's an argument, you know, that focuses the mind, it increases that sharpness about audit quality. All players in the market might think, I don't want to get hit by this big stick. I'll either withdraw or it really doesn't provide an incentive to enter the market. The risk-reward balance that Anna talked about, you know, it's just not worth our while. So what's the right blend? What do we want the regulator to do to really promote that competition and choice? And do the white paper proposals get it? A few years back, I looked at a quite a large sample of regulatory reports from around the world and it was really interesting to see how the flavour of those reports reflected the culture of the jurisdiction, the country from which they were drawn. So I think it's important that the regulator is aligned with jurisdictions culture. Has the FRC got that alignment right? I think broadly speaking over the years it probably has but there are leads and lags. So you ask what's the role of the regulator in all of this? The role of a regulator is to encourage innovation in audit quality and investment in audit quality. Um, it's obviously also got a role in sanctioning but that 
role of encouragement and innovation and investment is a really primary role. Um, and that is the carrot. You obviously need both stick and a carrot, but it's become clear over the years that we need more carrot. And in particular, we need a better idea than we have now. And the firms need a better idea than they have now um, about what good looks like. Regulators have to serve their political masters and they have to be seen to be dealing with poor audit quality and bad auditor behaviour. But the, the real value, I think, in what regulators do in the long term is the way they encourage better audit quality rather than discourage worse audit quality. How does the white paper reflect this? Well, one common complaint about regulatory systems, not just within auditing, but, but you know, within the whole regulatory universe, is if you don't fund a regulator properly, it can't do its job. And for many years, we've had great aspirations for regulators, but we've been miserly in the resources that we give them. Now, clearly in the white paper, there is the sense that we're going to give the ARGA, the body that will replace the FRC, considerably more resources than it's had to date. And indeed, it's been described as, as the FRC on, on, on steroids. And that's good in some respects, but it's going to have to consider how it's going to use those uh, uh, resources most effectively to make sure it, it's pulling from the front as well as chivying from the back. We're talking about firms entering and exit the market and I think that's really um, important. At the end of the day, audit firms and the audit regulator should be working to the same end, which is to improve audit quality. And we, we know from the detail that we've looked at here that actually the firms, the regulator and indeed some, some some other stakeholders in audit quality, they do have slightly different interpretations of what audit quality is and different metrics. But in the long run, these these should converge. And it's got to be clear to firms that are thinking maybe about entering the PIE audit market that its quality objectives and the regulator's quality objectives are in the long term aligned and that this that the regulator isn't just there to beat them up when they do things wrong because if that's what they think as you rightly say it simply isn't going to be worth the effort and equally importantly we need to prevent firms exiting the market when they only have a handful of PIE audits for exactly the same reason. Thank you, Catherine. I want to put this discussion in context, and in particular in an international setting. It would be entirely wrong to say it's just the UK that has got something of a problem here. Around the world, many, many other economies are dealing with audit quality, concentration of big firms, how to improve their corporate governance. Tracy, from your perspective, you know, as a senior person within a big four international firm, is there anything that we can learn from international markets and apply it to the remedies proposed in the white paper, whether it's audit or indeed, given your specialism, whether it's corporate governance? So, yes, I think, you know, that there is scope. You know, clearly we have to, to learn the lessons and things like, you know, thinking and everyone's talking about UK, Sarbox, and there has been a massive learning curve in those areas, or sorry, in that area around how to fine-tune those requirements so that they have the, the most impact for the companies and, and the stakeholders. 
on things like the you know the competition and choice piece I, I think it is very difficult to even attempt to do that just on a UK basis because the firms are all parts of international networks and we are dealing with global companies so that is going to be challenging to do on a UK only basis and, and we do need to be looking at the international market and future changes to that. On audit quality, maybe, you know, maybe there is more scope for us to do and to make change and drive effective change on a UK basis. But again, I think there are lessons to be learned from the way that other regulators uh, you know, and other jurisdictions deal with their sort of inspection process um, and whether they are risk-focused. Um, you know, Coming back to Catherine's point, perhaps not quite so much there to be seen as criticising and only focusing on the bad and trying to be more productive around the um, you know the putting more context around the the results and the findings of the audit quality inspections I think it's really important that there is you know appropriate context especially if we're going to be going towards more transparency of the audit quality review reports it's really important that those reports are balanced and really give the context for the nature of the audit that we're talking about at the moment there's no nuance between you know a really good audit of a very poorly managed entity versus a poor quality audit of a well-managed entity you know that it's things like that that perhaps really need to come through more the people that read those reports in the future really understand what they are saying um, and not just jump to the conclusions that we often see uh, in the media at the moment. Catherine, you look at international examples of best practice in a whole range of things, particularly in terms of audit quality, the regulatory environment, in terms of what works. Is there anything that we can learn from that international experience to really make sure that our standing in the global economy on audit, on corporate governance and general professional services firms, which is one of the best anywhere in the world, is maintained and enhanced in the next couple of decades? We know that investors are particularly concerned about maintaining the UK's status with regard to professional services, corporate governance and indeed the quality of the audit. It isn't guaranteed and we absolutely have to maintain that. One of my particular interests here, and we do know the world is watching what we're doing, we do know the world is watching very, very closely what we're doing, and we do know from experience and from history that there will be jurisdictions that pick up what we do in the UK and they will translate that more or less as is in, in, into their own legislation. Now, an example of that in, in reverse is what we can learn from the USA about its implementation of the Sarbanes-Oxley regime and the reporting on an internal controls framework is clearly a key plank of the white paper uh, proposals. The USA in 2003 is not the same as the UK in, in 2021 and we know from the discussions that we've had with, with audit firms about this subject that the Sarbanes-Oxley regime has been exported across the world with very mixed results. It works very well in some jurisdictions, but it doesn't work in others. And, and what I think we've learned from this is that you need to adapt it to the local jurisdiction. If you simply take what's in the US legislation, put it into your own legislation without a great deal of thought or adaptation, you get something that's a compliance exercise. And I've sat in meetings with partners from large firms saying, Sarbanes-Oxley, it just doesn't work for us. We do it, but it's a bit of a waste of time. And that must not happen here. And I have the impression, talking to 
all of the stakeholders, auditors, investors, audit committee chairs, that there's a real will to make sure that and do the work and take the time to do the work to get it right in the UK because it wasn't done right first time in the USA. I think that's widely acknowledged because it was rushed. It was all done in the wrong order. The auditors were asked to do things before directors were asked to do things. And I do think we can benefit from those learnings from the USA provided we take the right pace. Paces in increasing a word we increasingly hear around the whole of the paper is we'll get this right if it's done at the right sort of pace and we don't have a knee-jerk reaction. Jane, I'd like you to pick up on Catherine's point, if you wouldn't mind, about internal controls and not necessarily the SOX environment that happened in the States 20 years or so ago, but in terms of how a key part of the white paper, that of strengthening the corporate governance regime through making directors more accountable, particularly through a strengthened internal controls framework. How does that help audit quality? I'm very struck during this discussion today about inputs and outputs. And if you've got strong inputs in terms of internal controls, does that mean you have stronger audit quality and audit results? Well, I think the internal controls are obviously going to be focused on the financial reporting, which is what our audit is is covering as well. So anything that can actually make that information uh, more robust, more reliable, more well controlled, I think has to have an impact on audit quality because um, you've got a a base product that you're auditing that is better. So I do think it could genuinely help audit quality, but primarily it hopefully will help the quality of corporate reporting. I I think to pick up on a couple of things um, Catherine mentioned there, the US does have a very granular approach to this and that's evolved over over a number of years, there was a a focus at one point to try and make it much more of a top-down sort of risk-based approach. And I think that that would be a very good way to have the essence of the Sarbanes-Oxford in the UK, but make it more proportionate and focused. It's just quite difficult to stop when you get into controls and processes. But I think there does need to be more in in the UK at the moment than, than we have presently around the requirements around controls and processes. But if we can make it to be something that is not quite as granular and as detailed as the Sarbanes-Oxley approach and still get some benefits, I think that's the goal. Although it, it is a bit of a, I think a million dollar question what that would look like right now. I'd like to finish on fraud. And let me turn to you again, Jane. We've all seen those criticisms. Surely the auditors can pick up on frauds. That's what an audit needs to be done. But given what the white paper proposes with that whole ecosystem of investors, particularly the directors and the audit committee and others, looking about how you manage, prevent and detect fraud, do you think there will be a change in corporate behaviour as a result of what the white paper proposes? Should more be done or has the white paper got the right balance? I think the white paper is going a long way towards the right balance because it's focusing on, first of all, what the directors need to do. And the directors need to be more transparent about the steps they've taken to prevent and detect fraud. And so I think it's definitely heading in the right direction. It then makes the auditors or requires the auditors to focus on whether that statement is accurate and also possibly even test the controls around that statement as well. So I think it's definitely going in the right direction. There's one key area I do think would probably help to start changing behaviours and get more focus in this area, and that is there was a requirement that directors actually did a fraud risk assessment. Some good companies already probably do a very good fraud risk assessment, but it's not necessarily widespread. So I think 
sitting down and focusing on where the risks of fraud are in the business in a more formal way and then having to report on that would be a good way to to change behaviors so although that's not specifically required in the consultation i think it would be a good practice behind um, what the consultation is proposing in terms of the extra disclosures these issues are fascinating and we could have spent so much more time listening to the insights and experiences of our panel i'm really grateful for their time i hope you've got a lot out of their contributions as indeed i have but we have run out of time all that remains for me to do is to thank our participants on the panel anna draper from bdo jane kerr from pwc tracy gordon from deloitte and Catherine bagshaw from icaw i hope you found that useful and informative in considering the white paper and i really hope that you listen to our earlier podcasts about setting the scene as well as corporate governance and the role of the regulator Thank you for your time and listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from ICAEW, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.